Sovereign God, we come to you acknowledging our desperate need for your grace. Father, you've given us the privilege of sharing in this task of the Great Commission to go and make disciples wherever we go. And we pray that you might first stir a hunger in our individual hearts to know you and to glorify your name in everything that we do. Father, give us eyes to see the depth of the grace that you have shown to us and to use that knowledge of your love to compel us and to motivate us to live for others so that they may also know the great mercy and love that you've given to us. Help us to stay centered on the gospel and focused on our mission to make disciples in whatever context that you place us. Father, we ask that you would give us a heart and a burden to serve the poor and share the gospel with those who don't know you so that your great name might be known and that you would be worshipped and glorified in our community, in our country, and in all the earth. And now, God, as we come to receive the food of your holy word, would you open the spiritual eyes of our hearts that we may behold wonderful things from your law. Convict us, comfort us, and change us. In Jesus' name, amen. Our uh, scripture today is from Matthew chapter 28. uh, You'll find it in the Red Bible on page 835. We're going to read verses uh, 16 to the end of the chapter, which is just 16 through 20. So Matthew 28, verses 16 and following. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is God's word. Good morning. You guys always require a practice run at that before you get it, so good morning. See? Thank you. If you would just start with that, we wouldn't have to keep doing this. It's all about efficiency. So next week, bring some ump from the beginning. Um, you may notice in your, your bulletin um, that the sermon title, um, the, the passage, all that's different this week, and I just want to explain that um, um, Ashley Stanzak's grandfather passed away this, this week um, unexpectedly, and Mike was scheduled to preach, and we just wanted to give Mike the room to, to be with his family and, and take care of his family, so we made a called an audible at the end of the week, um, which means a few things. One, very little sermon prep time, so be praying. Um, and, and, but also, it means that I didn't get all the notes and everything into, into um, the announcements before this morning. Um, But what is right is that today we're getting back into our series through Matthew's Gospel. 
And what I wanted to do this morning, because we took the summer off from Matthew's gospel, what I want to do this morning is to bring us back at a high level into the gospel of Matthew to reorient us to what Matthew is up to in this gospel. And then next week, Matthew will bring us, uh, Mike Mike will bring us back into Matthew chapter 8. So before I do that, uh, would you pray with me? Father, it's a very weighty thing to speak for you, to read your word and then to proclaim this is what God has said to his people. And I feel that weight now, and I pray that you would give grace to bring my thoughts together, to clearly reintroduce us to Matthew, and I pray that you would give all of us eyes and ears to see and to hear the glory of God in Matthew, the glory of our King Jesus as portrayed in Matthew, to see perhaps what we've never seen before in this gospel, um, to see the wisdom of God in orchestrating all of history to an appointed end in the person and work of Jesus Christ, and that in seeing those things be drawn to a deeper sense of worship for the glory of who you are to weigh heavily among us in a way that changes us, in a way that motivates us to proclaim your glory among the nations, and in a way that we see your power and your glory and your grace working for us, your people. So teach us. We bow the knee to you as your people and ask you to conform us to the likeness of your Son by conforming us through the renewing of our mind, through the preaching of your word. Amen. Um, So last week, I read an article about a brand new passenger jet that's being built. Um, This particular jet is designed for um, international business travelers. And I geeked out when I read about this jet, uh, because it is unlike any jet you've ever heard of before. It is designed um, to take away all the pains and hassles of international flight, Um, So if you book a flight on this jet, then it proves that you work for a very wealthy company or that you're very wealthy because here are some of the amenities that will be included in this jet. You no longer have a seat on the plane. You have a suite on the plane, just like on a train. Um, You have a pull-out bed. You have your own personal shower. Um, On this jet will be a gym, a salon, so you can go get your hair did, get your nails did, um, get a massage. There's a restaurant on this jet. It's really quite impressive. Um, And it's supposed to take off in New York and then go to Chicago and then Los Angeles and then Tokyo. And as it goes along that path, picking up more uber-wealthy business people that can afford such travel luxuries. Um, And so I, I was just imagining what the first flight would be like on this jet. So imagine that this flight takes off in New York, and it's headed towards Chicago. And all these people, I mean, if you've been flying, even first class, this is quite an upgrade. Um, And and so imagine these people get on the jet for the first time, and they they already have in mind, like, what am I going to try first? And so a few folks get on the plane, and they go straight to their suite and close the door, and they just go to sleep. Another guy jumps on, and as soon as they're at cruising altitude, he's in the shower just to experience what's it like to shower at 30,000 feet. 
Um, someone else immediately changes in their gym clothes. They rush off to the gym, and they, they just want to say, what's it like to get pumped at 30,000 feet? And others are getting massages, and they're going to the restaurant. All of this stuff, okay? So imagine that while they are experiencing this, this heaven-in-air flight on the way to Chicago, imagine that there's this businessman sitting in Chicago who's trying to get to Los Angeles for an important meeting, and his flight's been canceled. And so he pulls up orbits, and he goes, and he's on a direct flight to, from Chicago to Los Angeles, and he's just hoping he can find something, and he finds a single flight. It's the Uber flight, the Mecca flight that's on its way right now. There's one ticket left. So he sees that it costs three times the normal price of a ticket, but he doesn't care. He books the flight. Meanwhile, the people that are on the plane that he's about to board are in the gym, and the shower, and at the restaurant, just enjoying this new way to travel. The, pl- the flight lands, and he rushes onto the plane and buckles up, and everyone around him just looks like this, this look this, this, of, of euphoria on their faces because of this flight they've been experiencing. And imagine this guy gets on the flight and he looks at them all and he says, can you believe it? It's a direct flight to Los Angeles. Can you imagine what all those people would have thought of this guy? I, I would assume that at least one person would look at him and say, no, it's not a flight to Los Angeles. It goes all the way to Tokyo. And while you go to Tokyo, you get, and he would just name off all the amenities. See, the problem of this person that gets on the flight in Chicago is that what they said is technically true. The plane goes from Chicago to Los Angeles. But he has so understated the flight that most people would say, no, that's not what this flight is about at all. I mean, technically, yes, but it's so much more. You've kind of reduced this glorious flight down to a direct flight from Chicago to Los Angeles. Quite often when we come to the Gospels in general, and Matthew in particular, that's what we do to Matthew. We sort of limit it to these small things that technically are true about Jesus, that are technically true about the Gospel of Matthew. But I think Matthew, if he could listen in to how we often talk of this gospel, but often he would probably listen in and say, no. I mean, yes, it's true, but no, it's not this. It's this. So much more. And so this morning, as we return to our study of Matthew, I want to call out just three ways that I think we tend to turn Matthew into a direct flight from Chicago to Los Angeles in three ways that I think Matthew is wanting us to say, no, it goes all the way to Tokyo, and look at everything else that's included. So the ways that we traditionally discuss, talk about, and and read, even how we read Matthew, is often very limited because we don't see what Matthew's really getting at. And so that's where we're going this morning. Um, I, I want us to walk away no longer thinking of Matthew as Chicago to Los Angeles, I want us to begin to see all the way to Tokyo with all this other great stuff. So there are three things, three common ways that we tend to read Matthew that I, I just want us to sort of blow up and, and expand. The first one is this, um, is to call it that Matthew is not about how to go to heaven. Matthew is not about how to go to heaven. Now, put your stones down. I know some of you are like, oh, Heresy! Hear me out, okay? It, it is that. It's, it, it's partly that, but that's the Chicago to Los Angeles part. It's so much more than simply 
How do you go to heaven? I think evangelicals, we tend to hear kingdom of heaven, this phrase kingdom of heaven, which occurs over 30 times in Matthew's gospel. We tend to hear it and we think, well, that's the place you go when you die. The kingdom of heaven is this place you go when you die. Therefore, because that's what we're primarily thinking about, when we read Matthew and we read verses like this, Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Or chapter 7, verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Chapter 19, verse 23, And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. So, so we tend to read phrases like that and hear this idea of kingdom of heaven. We, we tend to think, well, this is just talking about who gets to go to heaven and who doesn't. So if you do these things, you go to heaven. If you don't do these things, you don't go to heaven. If, you, if your righteousness does not exceed that of the Pharisees, you'll never make it in, is, is how we tend to think of it. But Matthew is actually telling us, um, so we translate that into Matthew's really just teaching us all how we can get to heaven. After all, how does Matthew end? It ends with the Great Commission, right? And what's the Great Commission all about? It's telling the church to go tell everybody else so they can go to heaven too. True, but only partly true. So what, what does Matthew really want us to, what's he really getting at? So to correct that thinking, I think we have to look at a few of the other ways that Matthew uses this idea of kingdom of heaven. For example, Um, chapter 8, verse 11. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. So again, I think we tend to read that verse and think one day when we all die, lots of people from all over the world will be in heaven too. But that's not what Matthew's getting at here. If you read the context of chapter 8, a Gentile centurion has come to Jesus and he's asked Jesus to heal one of his servants. And, um, and through this exchange, ultimately where Jesus lands is he's, he's, he sort of celebrates and he says, I haven't seen this kind of faith in all of Israel. And he concludes by saying, I tell you that many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. And what Matthew is helping us to see here in this idea of kingdom of heaven is this long-awaited promise that one day God would send his Messiah into the world and that people from all the nations would come to him. And so this idea of of entering the kingdom of heaven is not something that's going to happen in this long, far-off future after everyone dies. What Matthew wants us to see and what Jesus is saying right here is that that time is now. The kingdom of heaven is now. It is present now. Gentiles are coming now. People from the nations are coming now. Or consider this, the kingdom of heaven Um, Chapter 13, verse 44, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then his joy, in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. What's he teaching us here? Is he teaching us the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden that, you know, that that, that I, I give up everything I have now so that one day when I die I can go to heaven? No. What he wants us to see is that the kingdom of heaven is here now. It's available now. That we give up everything for the kingdom now. It's present among us now. Jesus brings the kingdom. Or think about about how Jesus prays the Lord's Prayer in the Sermon on the Mount. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And what does he say? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. One author, I think, summarizes the idea very well when he writes this. The kingdom of heaven is not about people going to heaven. It's about the rule of heaven coming to earth when Matthew 
has Jesus talking about heaven's kingdom, he means that heaven, in other words, the God of heaven, is establishing his sovereign rule, not just in heaven, but on earth as well. And so when Jesus comes, he brings the kingdom, and he invites us into the kingdom now, and it is a kingdom that will extend on throughout eternity, but it's here now. It changes us now. The promises of the kingdom are now. The blessings of the kingdom are now. The responsibilities of being part of the kingdom are now. It's not when we die. So when we read Matthew, we can't read Matthew as this blueprint that Matthew is giving us to figure out how to go to heaven when you die. It's to rejoice that the kingdom is actually here now. It has broken into our reality. God is restoring all things through his kingdom and he invites us into that kingdom now. So if we limit this idea of the kingdom of heaven to when I die, I get to go to heaven, then that's Chicago to Los Angeles. And Matthew wants us to see, no, 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 all the way to Tokyo. It's so much more, and it's ours now. Now, why does this matter? I think you may be thinking, okay, theological concept, who cares? Why, why does this really matter for us? And I think there are two important reasons um, is that of, of changing our understanding of the kingdom. The first one is this. The kingdom of heaven, when rightly understood, helps correct a wrong view of the physical world around us. Now, brace yourself. I'm about to go into philosophy, <laughs> but it's really important, and here's why. Here's why. I think that the way that Christians, evangelical Christians in particular, think about heaven and the physical world around us is shaped much more by a philosopher by the name of Plato than it is by the Bible. And here's why. Um, Plato taught this thing, we call it Platonic dualism. And so here's what Plato believed, that there is a world, there's a physical world that we live in and inhabit, and then there's a world of what we call the forms. And so the world of the forms is this sort of perfect ideal that exists in the heavens. And so Plato would explain it like this. Um, imagine, if you will, in your mind, a perfect circle. Imagine a perfect circle. And then Plato would say, now draw that circle. And his point is that it's literally impossible to draw a, a perfect circle. You can't do it. And so there is this idea of the perfect circle that it exists in the heavens, that it exists in the forms, that we can never experience it now in the physical world. And he applies that to all of the created order, all the physical. So, so there's this broken, messed up version of us, and then there's like the perfect form of humanity in the heavens. There's this pedestal thing, like there's this broken version of it now because it doesn't have a cup holder for us. But in the heavens... I'm serious, that's a legit thing, so you woodworkers, I challenge you. Um, but, but then there's this form in the heavens, and so that's Platonic dualism. And that has very much, I think, and, and so what that led Plato to then is this idea that um, ultimate liberation comes from dying and escaping this physical world. We can just be free of this physical world, of our bodies and all that, and live in the, this heaven where all the forms exist. That's what ultimate liberation looks like. And that idea actually has very much shaped Christianity, negatively. And so how do many of us Christians think about ultimate liberation? If I could just be free of this body and be in heaven, in this ethereal, floating around kind of space, that, that if I could just be free from the physical world, God doesn't really care about the physical world. He, it, ultimately, what we're after is going to heaven. Here's the problem with that. What does Jesus come to restore? The physical world. When Jesus comes and announces the kingdom of heaven is here, how does he do it? 
He restores sight to the blind. He makes the deaf hear. He raises the dead. He, he feeds those who are hungry. He, he, he goes to the poorest. He is restoring a physical world. He's not coming saying, let me liberate you from this bondage of flesh so that you can live in this ethereal world thereafter. Or have you read the end of the story? Have you read Revelation? How does Revelation end? It doesn't end with us going up to this ethereal heaven somewhere. How does Revelation end? A physical city, a garden city that God has redeemed and restored in which we live, in which we have physical work and physical jobs and live in physical places. And so I think we have to see the kingdom of heaven as the inbreaking of God to restore all that sin has destroyed. And that's what Jesus brings. And that has very practical implications for us now. It should change the way that we think of things about now. That how we live, how we work, how we care for the poor, all of these things are a demonstration of the kingdom of God restoring. Ultimately and only fully restored through the gospel of Jesus Christ. But our, our minds have to shift from thinking to heaven is this thing that happens one day if I, if I ever die to the kingdom of heaven is here and it's now and it matters. And the kingdom of heaven changes how we live. Here's the thing that was so radical about the Sermon on the Mount. Like, why did we need the Sermon on the Mount, right? I mean, hadn't God already taught his people how to live? What makes the Sermon on the Mount so radical is that when Jesus enters into the world, he brings in this kingdom that is unlike anything we have ever seen or heard before. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is so different than what we were all expecting. It it so contradicts everything that we know that Jesus has to come and reteach his people. This is what it looks like to live in the kingdom. Because everything that we thought was just skewed, it was off, it was wrong. We weren't fully capturing it. Go back and listen to the Sermon on the Mount when we went through that part of the series and be reminded of how utterly different it is. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven is here now. And the king of that kingdom, through the Sermon on the Mount, comes teaching us how to live in his kingdom now. Not when we die. Now. And it's a living that will continue on throughout all of eternity. So yes, Matthew tells us about how to get to heaven. What happens after death? But it's so much more than that. It's so much more than that. The second thing of Matthew is that Matthew is not primarily about proving that Jesus is God. Matthew is not primarily about proving that Jesus is God. We, we tend to reduce Matthew and, and probably the other Gospels to sort of a series of apologetic proofs that Jesus is God. Right? That if we can just show you in Matthew that Jesus really is God and you're not a Christian, and you'll go, oh, have I never seen that before? Of course he's God. And, and that's kind of why Matthew Matthew writes this. And Matthew certainly does demonstrate that Jesus is God, but we can't stop there. Matthew wants us to see that Jesus is God for a very particular reason. It's not just to show off who Jesus is. It's not just to show a cool apologetics argument. Hey, Jesus is God. I proved it. Matthew has something so much bigger, something so much more that he wants us to see. So if we go all the way back to the beginning, all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2 and work our way through the entire Old Testament, one of the most glaring things that we learn is that the history of Israel teaches us that when God dwells among his people, everything is good. And when God does not dwell among his people, everything goes bad very quickly. So that Genesis 1 and 2, as God dwells with his people, humanity flourishes. 
We said several times that you can see Genesis 1 and 2 and the relationships within Genesis 1 and 2 as a series of concentric circles. So at the center of all things is how we relate to God. And when we are rightly related to God, then flowing out of that, we are rightly related to ourselves, and we experience a sense of wholeness and flourishing in life. And when we're rightly related to ourselves and to God, then we're able to rightly relate to other people. And so now in community, we flourish together because everything is aligned around God, God, self, others, and then also out to the physical world. Well, what happens in Genesis 3? Genesis 1 and 2, God dwells among his people. Genesis 3, what happens? Sin destroys that. These fissures are shot throughout those concentric relationships in Genesis chapter 3. And what do you see in Genesis chapter 3? Our relationship to God, we go into hiding. We want to hide from God. I want to get away from Him. The relationship to ourself, now I'm naked and ashamed. My relationship to other people, it was her fault, it was his fault. Start blaming each other. Our relationship to the physical world, thorns and thistles break everything we do. And how does Genesis 3 end? We're banished from the garden. And what was the garden? What was the garden? It was the place where God dwelled among his people. And in Genesis 3, we're banished from that place. God no longer dwells among his people. What exists outside of the garden? Chapter 4, murder. Chapter 5 and 6, destruction. And it just, you, it, it, when you get to Genesis 4, it's like we're reading a decreation story. As soon as sin fractures everything and God is no longer the center of all things, everything is just destroyed. But Genesis 3 ends with this whisper of hope that when God dwells among his people, all of this will be restored. It'll be made right. So think of the rest of the Old Testament. What is the tabernacle? Many things, but at its very essence, what is the story of the tabernacle? It is God reestablishing a way that God will dwell with his people. What is the temple all about? God dwelling among his people. The conquest as Israel is about to go into the promised land. What is that all about? God bringing his people into a new place where God will dwell among his people. What is the story of the kings? God will send a shepherd king to lead the people to once again dwell among God. What is the exile all about? Sin continually destroys and fractures and God punishes Israel by again banishing his people but with this promise that he will return. So the entire story of the Old Testament is the story of our banishment from God and the destruction that comes when we are banished from God. Think about the creation narrative. Uh, Genesis 1 and 2, there, there, there is much temple imagery in Genesis 1 and 2, not just in the Bible, but also other um, ancient Near Eastern texts or, around this time, which would have seen if a, if a god were to build a temple for themselves, they would build the temple, and then they would put their image in the temple um, to sort of represent them in that particular place. And Genesis 1 and 2 actually picks up that same type of imagery, that, but, but here's the difference. When God creates the temple, it's called the universe, Right? God creates the heavens and the earth as a temple as a, to, to, to represent him in a place where he could dwell among his people. And, and what is the image that God places in this temple in Genesis 1 and 2? Humanity. He creates humanity to bear his image in, in the world. And all things are good when, we dwell among, when God dwells among his people. And that's lost. 
it's destroyed because of sin and this recurring hope and longing and promise that we see throughout the Old Testament is when, when, when will God dwell among his people and make all things right again? And you may think that when you get to the time of the New Testament, that question's been answered, right? The Jews that are back in their land, the temple has been rebuilt, although it's a pretty anemic temple compared to the original. They have priests. Hasn't this been fulfilled? Isn't God dwelling among his people once again? And if you were to ask most first century Jews walking on the streets, is God back with you? I think most of them would have said no. The exile is not complete. Why? Why is the exile not complete? We're still occupied by this foreign country, by this foreign power, this temple that we have. Man, that thing's a joke. That is a joke. Tiny little thing, the glory of Israel and the glory of God and his people has not been restored. And it's into that world, these people longing for exile truly to be over, longing for the sense that God now dwells among his people, into that thought world that we read these words. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin, hear this, shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means... God with us. Why does Matthew want us to see that Jesus is God? Because in Christ, God dwells among his people. And everything that sin has robbed and broken and destroyed is being undone. And the glory of God among his people is being restored. In this special community that God has set apart to go into the world proclaiming the glory of God among the nations so that the nations would be drawn to God. That's happening now. God now dwells with his people again. So if we reduce Matthew to, this is an apologetic proof that Jesus is God. Mic drop, I'm out. We limit what Matthew wants us to see. We don't need to see that Jesus is God simply to say that Jesus is God so that our doctrinal points are in line. We need to see that Jesus is God because God has entered into our reality to dwell among us so that we could sing with great hope the words of one of my favorite Christmas songs, Come thou long expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art, dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart, born thy people to deliver, born a child and yet a king, born to reign in us for ever, now thy gracious kingdom.
Yes, Matthew teaches us that Jesus is God. But that is to show us that God has returned to his people. And as Matthew will show us, that people now includes us, the nations. Final thing is that Matthew is not merely historical background to Jesus. This happens to me somewhat frequently. Um, I don't know a lot of things, but Wikipedia can make it look like you know a lot of things. You laugh because you do the same thing. And here's one of the things that I've learned using Wikipedia. I will look up a certain topic, a person, a place, something like that in Wikipedia. And as I'm reading, inevitably as I'm reading, there's some reference to another person or another place that I need to know about if I'm going to understand the rest of the story. And there will be a hyperlink there. So as I'm reading, like, oh, I don't know who that is. I need to click on that. And then it will take me over to this other link. And I'll kind of briefly skim through it really quickly just so I know enough so that I can then get back to, like, the real article that I really want to read about, right? Um, and I think a lot of the times we treat the Gospels that way, right? We kind of read the Gospels as, yeah, they're important, but the Gospels are really just sort of helping us to understand who this guy Jesus is and why he died on the cross. Because after all, if we didn't have the Gospels, if we just went straight from the Old Testament to, say, Romans, we'd be sitting there going, who's this Jesus guy, and why did he die, and why did it matter, right? That's what we'd be thinking. So really, we need the Gospels to give us the historical introduction to who Jesus is so that we can get to the real stuff, like all that stuff Paul wrote right? We, that, that's, what, that's what the Gospels were, to bridge us over there so that we can now see, you know, this is, this is the good stuff. This is the big stuff. Um, and it, very often we do, we, we reduce Matthew to this historical lead up to the cross and resurrection just so we can understand the rest. But we have to understand that Matthew carefully arranges the entire Gospel to teach us very specific things He presents Jesus as this long-awaited Messiah King. And everything that we're learning as we read the Gospels, we're learning who the King of the Kingdom is. And in the life and the actions of the King, we're learning what it means for us to be part of that Kingdom. In Jesus and in the Gospels, we are seeing the entire history of all of the Bible summed up in Jesus Christ. We're seeing everything that we could never do for ourselves summed up in this person, Jesus Christ. We're learning the essence of the kingdom into which we have been called. And so when we see Jesus, our king, in the kingdom, for example, um, in the way that we often read the miracles, if if, if we just read the Gospels as this historical introduction to Jesus, then we'll read the miracles as just really cool party tricks that prove Jesus is God or that he's divine, right? It doesn't really matter what he does. So he could have raised a dead guy, he could have given sight to the blind, or he could have picked up Mount Everest and spun it on his finger, right? Only God can do that. But instead, I'll stick with healing people, right? If that's all it is, if if it's just a proof, a historical proof that Jesus is a big deal. But even the specific miracles that Jesus did are teaching us about what God is up to. Jesus doesn't do these crazy big things he could have done to show his deity, to show who he is. Why? Why does he give sight to the blind? Why does he raise the dead? Why does he heal the leper? Why does he spend his time among the poor and the marginalized and the voiceless in society? Because he is demonstrating that he has come to restore all that sin has broken and robbed us of. He's restoring physical creation. 
And this teaches us a very important thing. As we see Jesus as our king, we also learn in this what it means for us to be part of his kingdom. So that if Jesus devotes much of his public ministry to caring for the poor and the marginalized and the weakest of his society, how much more should we? How much more is that a calling on our lives as we follow our king to live in the ways that our king did? It's not just historical background. It's teaching us to be part of this kingdom. So that's how not to read Matthew. How do we? And so I just want to quickly, I hope, three ways that we need to see Matthew. And as we read Matthew, three important things that we see Matthew doing. First, as we see Jesus in Matthew, we need to see that Jesus is the story of Israel. Jesus is the story of Israel. Uh, when we come to Matthew, we should see, we, we should see it as, a, as just a series of stories that have all been pointing toward this appointed end, this, this person who would come and wrap all things up and complete all of those stories. And Jesus is the completion of the story of Israel. One verse of many that we could go to for this. Chapter 2, verse 15. Matthew says a very profound thing that you could very easily miss if you're not paying attention. Um, this is after Jesus has come up out of Egypt. Matthew writes, This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Now this is a direct quote from the Old Testament. But in the Old Testament, when it says that out of Egypt I called my son, he's talking about Israel. And here in Matthew's gospel, Jesus says that this is talking, or Matthew says this is talking about Jesus. That, that, that Jesus is my son that I'm calling up out of Egypt. Well, what is Matthew getting at there? Why does he say that? Why would he say this thing? It's very simply this. Here's the point that, that Matthew is making about Jesus. Jesus is the Israel that we could never be. Jesus is the Israel we have all failed to be. What does that mean? All the way back to Genesis 1 and 2. Again, God creates a community to dwell in his place and to image him in everything that they do. Um, and, and to bear his glory and to proclaim his glory to the nations. Genesis 3, sin destroys that, and the entire story of Israel, the history of Israel, as it were, is God pursuing and setting apart a community who would bear his image, who would bear and image God in the world through everything that they do, who would go out into the world proclaiming the glory of God. And Israel is completely incapable of doing it. Why? The point was never Israel. The point of Israel was to point us to the true Israel that was yet to come, Jesus Christ. So that Israel now represents God to the nations. We could never be the Israel that God calls us to be. So Jesus becomes Israel for us. He becomes this perfect community, as it were, who perfectly images God in all things that he does. He perfectly represents God. And he calls the nations to worship God. And Matthew introduces us to this reality that through faith, Jesus' perfect Israelness becomes our Israelness. And in Jesus, in Christ, God is creating this new community that is now empowered by the Spirit to live as God's Israel, to live as God's representative people. So Matthew wants us to see in the story of Israel that Jesus is bringing it full circle, that Jesus is the Israel to which all of Scripture has pointed. This is why, for example, when you see things like Jesus going into the wilderness to be tempted, this is why your mind immediately goes to, didn't Israel go into the wilderness? 
Weren't they tempted and failed? And yet Jesus is the true Israel that goes into the wilderness and crushes it? We need an Israel to stand in our place to be the Israel we could never be before God. The second thing that we need to see in Matthew is that Jesus is not only the story of Israel, Jesus is the story of God. Jesus is the story of God. I already covered this in the first point, that this is the story of God, God creating a community among whom he will live. In the genealogy, Matthew presents Jesus as this long-awaited king. He's the promised shepherd king, and at the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus goes up on a mountain. Why does he go up on this mountain? It's clearly because Matthew wants us to see in that God drew near to his people at Mount Sinai, and here Jesus is drawing near to his people at the Sermon on the Mount, creating this new community. He is completing all things in Christ. Jesus is the true Israel we could never be. Jesus is God to us, and Jesus is fulfilling this story of God. And the third thing that we see in Matthew is that Jesus, Jesus is the story of the world. Jesus is the story of the world. That from the beginning, God's plan has been to send his representative people into the world to bear witness to God, to proclaim his glory among the nations so that people would be drawn to God and worship God. I referenced this already um, when the centurion, the Gentile centurion comes to Jesus. Jesus responds, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. And here Jesus pointing to the fact that now God has brought the kingdom in Jesus Christ and he has created the community that will succeed, empowered by the Spirit, because of the work of Christ, to go into the world proclaiming the glory of God. This is... Now God will dwell among his people, and that will be among the nations. And, and so this, the, the, the story comes full circle by the time you get to the end of Matthew, that Jesus is the Israel we could never be, and through the cross and resurrection, Jesus now creates a new community, invites us into that community to be the new recreated community of God. And how does Matthew end? And Jesus said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, what does he say? Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so Matthew ends with God's new community recommissioned and sent into the world to image God in the world, and to proclaim the glory of God in the world, and to proclaim to the world how the world can now know this God through Jesus Christ. And that's our mission as a church. That's our mission as a church. That with God dwelling among us, we go into the world. We go into the world in the natural rhythms of our lives, the day-to-day, where we work, where we live, where we play, all those things and all that we do, proclaiming, proclaiming that God has drawn near, the kingdom of heaven is here. And that utterly reorients our lives, right? Or it should utterly reorient our lives, that we now see our own lives in relation to this great cosmic narrative that's been playing out throughout the entire Bible 
of God pursuing his people. And now he has them, and he's called us into that community. One of the great mistakes, I think, of the Christian church in the West in particular is that we treat our faith way too individualistically. Right? And so when we speak of our identity in Christ, for example, we often think of it only as my identity in Christ because of what Jesus did for me. And here's, I think, one of the things that we should be getting from Matthew as well is that we not only have this unique individual identity in Christ, but we now have this transformed identity because of the community of which we are now a part. And this community of which we are now a part defines who we are. We are God's community And as God's community, we go into the world bearing God's image and proclaiming good news throughout the world. That's our identity. This isn't just simply a tack-on responsibility that Jesus gives the disciples at the end of Matthew. He's not just saying, oh, and by the way, I forgot to write this in the main book. Here's a footnote. Um, This would be a really good idea if you could do this while you go tell people about me. No, he saves it for the very end to summarize it all to say, you are the community of God sent forth to bear God's image in everything that you do, sent forth to proclaim the gospel, to proclaim to the nations that they can now know God, that God has drawn near, that God is restoring, God is renewing, God is healing. He is undoing all that's been broken. Come to him. It's not a tack on. It's who we are. It's who we are. Father, you have shown us 10,000 mercies and unending patience in pursuing us and calling us and drawing us to yourself. I pray in this moment now that you would reorient our lives not simply around a to-do list that Christians get, but that you would reorient our lives around our identity as your people. And that that reorientation would utterly transform the way that we do everything as we see ourselves as the unique community of God sent into the world to proclaim the excellencies of you who have called us out of darkness and into your marvelous light.